This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, over 10 years ago, the Southern Poverty Law Center filed a lawsuit against the then sheriff. That lawsuit eventually resulted in a federal consent decree. And from there, the battle over jail size and for the construction of the facility known as Phase 3 began to take shape. We'll look back at how this project came to be and the fate of it today. And there are over 20 carbon capture and sequestration projects in the works in Louisiana, and a state legislative task force is exploring the possible impacts of those projects. But many voices are being shut out of the conversation, according to some environmental advocates and attorneys. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Environmental reporter from Floodlight, Terry Jones. Hey, Terry. Hello, how's it going? Good. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Katie Rechtal. Hey, Katie. Hey, how are you? Good. So, Nick, we've been talking about phase three for years now. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about how we got here. You have a deep dive into the history of the troubles in the criminal justice system here in Orleans Parish on our website right now. Let's dig into it. Tell us about the lawsuit that started the whole thing. Sure. So in 2010, the Southern Poverty Law Center filed a lawsuit alleging that conditions in the jail were unconstitutional. And um, this was, you know, pretty wide ranging uh, from mental health care at the facility to to policies and procedures that that weren't keeping uh, detainees safe from violence from other detainees or from from guards and use of excessive force. And the lawsuit came one, it came following Hurricane Katrina and, and following the storm, the, the jail flooded and there were reports of uh, people being abandoned in their cells, of flood waters rising up, um, you know, to people's chests and just really, really horrific stories that, that came out. So there was a lot of scrutiny of, of the jail after that. Um, and the Department of Justice came in and, and did an investigation and issued a findings letter. So there was a lot of uh, talk about the conditions at the jail. And at the time, it was this massive complex of, of jail buildings, the Orleans Parish Prison Complex. Um, it, you know, many of them were damaged by the storm and, and subsequently closed. But, you know, there were thousands of people in the, in the jail prior to the storm, over 6,000 people. And so the lawsuit kind of came on the heels of, of a lot of this this reporting and discussions around around conditions at the jail and would eventually lead to to the federal consent decree, which the jail is currently under, where there is federal oversight over the policies and procedures at the jail that is meant to bring it up to constitutional standards. Okay. And you mentioned the jail population. Um, I think you said over 6,000 at the time. Was that historically the highest it had ever been? And put that into context for a city of New Orleans size, how dramatic that number actually is. Yeah, I mean, I think it was the highest urban incarceration rate, you know, in the country at the time. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, in the 6,000, 7,000 range was, it had grown steadily for decades prior to, to Katrina. Um, and that was, you know, as we mentioned in the story, kind of the work of the sheriff for, you know, many years prior to, to Gusman, Charles Fody, who... Uh, really went after contracts with uh, the Department of Corrections, with other sheriffs to house detainees in New Orleans, and also kind of pushed for for harsher uh, uh, sentencing and criminal justice policies to the, the you know subsequently increased the, the jail population and really 
use these detainees and, and the, the money coming in to kind of expand his political influence uh, in the city. That means his budget is bigger. So he you said he has more power because of that. Is that is it just that straightforward? You're hiring lots of people. So you have a huge amount of you know, power in that sense. It's a it's a large office. Um, and then he would also send detainees out on, to do these kind of public works projects. So, you know, they would like staff the the Halloween, uh, uh, I don't know, I wasn't, I don't know what it was, Carnival or something at City Park, like these very public facing um, kind of measures of goodwill in the city to kind of, you know, uh, heighten his profile. You know, that that's kind of from my understanding what, what was going on. I mean, Cody's jail had such tentacles into the city, like you would be dry, you'd be walking around, you'd see trucks full of people who were on work release who would come out and they would clean gutters or they would bring tents, not just to the Halloween thing. That was, you know, those big events. They did that too, but they also would bring, you know, like the tent to the senior citizens event for the, for Easter or the tent for the school uh, carnival that was like for an afternoon. They were everywhere. You, they were cleaning gutters. They were fixing things. If somebody had a party, um, that the graduation party, sometimes there would be a Fody tent there for some reason. If the, if he knew those people, if they had some influence, they would end up with the sheriff's tent over their um, barbecue or their crawfish boil and stuff. And so the whole jail complex, you had tons and tons of people who were working in the community under Fody's footprint, right? And he would, he had a giant kitchen, he had a tilapia farm, he had this, that's what he, I think he's the one that started the senior citizens Thanksgiving thing. Like, I don't quite, I've never understood why a sheriff has a Thanksgiving meal. You know, all those kinds of things. Fody was just everywhere, hmm. doing everything. He turned everything that he could find into a jail. It was just, it was like an empire. A key component, it sounds like, uh, of the federal consent decree is to provide adequate mental health and medical health care facilities or care, I guess, not facilities necessarily. But can you talk about how that has then sort of catapulted us to phase three? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, lack of mental health care was one of the one of the main things that, that led to the consent decree. Um, people just were, weren't being treated. And after Katrina, one of one many of the jail buildings were were destroyed, and there was uh, some FEMA money to to build a new jail facility. Um, so after the cons after the consent decree was filed, the the you know court said you need to bring bring your mental health care standards up, but also you are building this uh, new jail. And I think there was a, a hope at the time that this new facility would resolve some of the issues that were going on with more room for counseling, more uh, suicide resistant cells. This also is kind of tied in with the jail population debate, but but we can go back to that. Ultimately, the jail that was built didn't have space, didn't have adequate space for, for mental health care, um, didn't have some of the, the counseling facilities that um, that advocates and, and attorneys for the plaintiffs and, and the DOJ thought should be there. Um, 
they it was separated into 60 pod cells with mezzanines, um, which can be a, a real risk for people with with serious mental illness for you know jumping off and things like that. So basically, there were there were a bunch of issues with the construction of the facility, and after it opened, the sheriff came and uh, developed an agreement with the state department of corrections to send people with serious mental illness to a state prison um, for the time being as kind of the the jail figured out how to address this this shortcoming but from advocates perspectives this this was always a move by the sheriff to build another jail facility um and you know to the sheriff at times kind of admitted this as well that there was always his plan to to build a separate mental health facility um but that was never necessarily communicated in any sort of straightforward way to to both the parties in the consent decree and to advocates who had been fighting for a smaller jail. Okay. At what stage did people start saying like, whoa, this is way too huge and a new facility will only exacerbate that, I guess. I mean, isn't it, doesn't it run counter to, to what some of the complaints were to build an additional yeah, so facility? A, a, after, after um, Katrina, when there was discussions of building this new facility. The debate kind of centered around an ordinance that gave the, the sheriff permission to build this new facility. And there was a lot of work being done in the criminal justice system in general to reduce the jail population. Um, so kind of changes in sentencing laws, uh, citations as opposed to arrest for things, you know, like low level charges and quality of life type charges. Um, there were efforts to kind of speed up case processing um, there was a, a risk assessment tool put into place so judges could, could you know, hopefully release more people as opposed to, to setting high bails and, and having them um, be stuck in jail in that, in that way. So there was this big effort to reduce the jail population. And then when the city council was giving permission to, to the sheriff to build this new jail facility, there was a, a real campaign to limit the number of beds. Um, and there were several working groups that kind of discussed the appropriate size of the jail. And ultimately, in kind of a real victory for advocates, there was a, a, an agreement from the, the city council ordinance ultimately limited the bets to, to 1438. And I think for advocates, that was kind of a hard number. Um, but there's some indication that for the sheriff and for the, the city, uh, you know, the, the city administration at the time that they're may be some possibility of of going over that. And, you know, that's kind of ultimately how, how you got to phase three. So the the previous administration and then moving into Gusman, um, some of the same problems persisted with his administration. Yeah, I mean, Gusman took office, I think, in 2004. And so he was he was the sheriff when the when the consent decree litigation was was filed. Um, and so those, those issues were, were occurring under, under his watch. But I think what was, what was frustrating for advocates was that they, they built this, you know, brand new jail, this 1400, this supposedly state-of-the-art facility. And a lot of the violence, a lot of the same issues that they were having in the old kind of decrepit facilities was persisting. Um, so, you know, in the story, I, I think, kind of try and point to to why try and figure out why phase three this 89 bed facility is has caused so much controversy and has been 
you know, the source of, of uh, so much opposition from, from advocacy organizations. And I think one of the reasons you have is that they feel like this phase three was, was always a way for the sheriff to get around an agreed upon bed cap and to expand the size of the jail. It's a jail expansion and it's not for the benefit of, you know, not for the benefit of detainees, but to, to expand his, his scope of influence. Um, so I think that, that was really, and, and, you know, Gusman initially was proposing a much larger phase three, uh, you know, hundreds of beds. Hmm. And I think it was, you know, clear to advocates and, and lots of city and city leaders that this was an unnecessary expansion and that Gusman on the one hand would kind of say, yeah, smaller jail sounds good. And then propose these, you know, uh, expansions. And then the other issue is that you had this brand new jail facility that opened in, in 2016 that failed to kind of provide the care and treatment to detainees that was promised by it. And they look at that and they say, you know, here you built a, a shiny new facility and we're seeing all the same problems and we don't want to spend another $110 $110 million on another huge facility to treat people with mental illness because we don't believe that it's going to work. Um, and, you know, I think there, there are some disagreements about that, but those are kind of, from my perspective, the, the real foundations of the opposition to this facility. Well, I just want to say it was more than, to me, it was more than Gusman's ambition to build a second building. I mean, he would say, yeah, he wanted another building, and his spokespeople would say they'd have another building. But then there, he, he would say there would be meetings, and, and like I remember Matt, Matthew asked at, for the reporter from The Lens asking about, well, what about that lot right there? And, he, and Gusman said, well, what's wrong with the little green space, right? And they did not share the designs of the building, citing security measures and then they built it without any health facilities in it and that's why they've been arguing about retrofit or new building they if they if they had just built it right the first time there would be health facilities or there would be some kind of designated floor or something to address some of these needs they deliberately built it without what was necessary in the jail making sure that the second building was necessary Period. Okay, so phase three, as a result, was a was a um, a fait accompli. It has to be built because it didn't right. address the needs, and the court has said you now you have to address these needs. Yes, and and the fact that tax dollars were allowed to be used for that initial part without meeting all these requirements, um, it's just I mean it's astonishing, really. And mm. now now that's that's where we are today. Okay. Has there anything changed since the last time we talked? What's going on right now with the construction? Uh, Construction has started. Mm. Um, There is a remaining challenge, legal challenge by the sheriff um, that is kind of pending with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. Um, And yeah, that's kind of kind of it. And there's still some sort of, you know, organizing in, in opposition by by you know, criminal justice groups in the city and, and kind of consistent opposition. But, you know, I think really right now it looks like th- this thing is moving forward. So, 
Okay. For those who haven't read this uh, story, I really recommend reading it. It's deeply reported, really, really great look at, at how we got here. So thanks, Nick. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, environmental reporter from Floodlight Terry Jones, education reporter Marta Jusen, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hi, I'm Delaney Dreyfus, environmental reporter at The Lens. Many people who rely on The Lens never think to make a donation, but if you do so today, you will be helping to promote one of the foundations of a healthy democracy, an informed public. The Lens has proven its worth day after day, month after month. If you're looking for a reason to support The Lens, consider this. Each and every week, we provide outstanding journalism, thoughtful analysis, and a deep commitment to our community. Make a tax-free donation today at thelensnola.org, and thank you. Terry, the Biden administration just cleared the way for the state to bypass the EPA to issue permits for wells that will store carbon in a process called Carbon Capture and Sequestration, CCS. There are plans in the works for over 20 of these facilities right now. I actually read about 30 or so to be built across the state. But many environmentalists and justice advocates are concerned that nearby residents' voices are not being heard. Terry, first, tell us about the process called Carbon capture and sequestration? How does it work? Well, it's being built as a way to cut emissions and basically to get this country to meet its, um, the redu- the reduction of greenhouse emission standards. I think we got about 2050 is where the country kind of wants to get, I think to maybe 30% to 0% carbon emissions. And so basically what this process is, is instead of releasing the carbon into the air, uh, facilities capture it and funnel it underground where um, sometimes it's piped out for um, oil recovery, which is what it's used for mostly, but also it's stored underground indefinitely. Uh, and it's supposed to just stay there. Um, but there are competing theories about what would happen to it underground. People say it, will, it would possibly, you know, the gas would move. It could come out in abandoned oil wells, which we have a lot of here in Louisiana, and potentially just come back out into the, in, into the atmosphere and, of course, be potentially dangerous for, for any surrounding communities. So, one, you have this really fierce debate that started uh, around carbon capture. And for a lot of people who are advocate, environmental advocates, they feel like it's just a way for the oil and gas industry to keep its hold on Louisiana and kind of block our transition to more cleaner and renewable energy sources like wind and solar power. Right. Uh, No CCS facilities have been built yet in Louisiana as we speak. Not that we know of. Okay. And (laughs) any, (laughs) yeah. And what could go wrong? Um, Right. Uh, tell us about some potential problems with other facilities like this that have been built in other areas. I'm speaking specifically about one in Mississippi. Yeah, Mississippi, uh, that's one that always comes up. It was actually a pipeline that uh, people say it exploded, but what it really did was it collapsed. Um, there was, it had too much rainfall, it was too much flooding, which is why people in Louisiana are very, very cautious of this. 
it collapsed the ground and collapsed this pipeline that was carrying CO2 and all the CO2 got released in the air. It was a small community, thank God. Uh, there were no serious injuries, but I think more than 20 people had to be hospitalized. And in one story, it was just, it was kind of scary the way he described it. Uh, one of the EMT workers said, you know, because once CO2 gets into the atmosphere, it kind of sucks out all the oxygen, larger quantities of it, and people's cars stopped working. And it's like people were walking around like zombies, mm. how he described it. Like they just had no sense of where they were. It was just like they were just walking around like just like sleepwalking almost. So that's a situation that people always point to as this is a dangerous situation. Um, when you have a situation like that, even the EMTs couldn't really get into the town because their cars wouldn't work, you know, because the CO2 had sucked all the oxygen out of the air. Wow. And so um, people feel like, you know, a lot of these small Louisiana towns where these places have been proposed, they wouldn't have the means or the abilities to fight this. People want them to kind of slow down. I want the state I'm talking about to slow down. Let's really figure this out. We, this isn't even a, a sure technology is what they think. You know, some people say that, you know, in other countries, uh, CCS really didn't capture all the carbon that they said it would. Uh, the bad thing about this is that our uh, state and federal government, you know, companies can just say how much they're they're capturing, right. but no one really provides oversight to that. So they could actually actually capture none of it and but still get all the tax credits and the benefits of it. It's basically like uh, the government is paying them to do this. The Biden administration through the IRA is paying them to do this. And they also are paying for the pipeline construction for all of the equipment that it takes. So we're actually paying for it for a company. Hey, why don't you do this? We'll pay for you to install this technology. And then if you install the technology and use it, then we're going to pay you. We're going to give you tax credits for doing it. So mm. it's kind of like, it's an industry that can't really supplement itself. Right, right, right. So what is the state legislative task force supposed to be doing and how are they doing it? The legislative task force is this 11 member uh, committee that was appointed in the last legislature section. Um, it was a brainchild of Sen Senator Heather Cloud, I think. And she kind of just wanted this special task force to look at what the local impacts of CCS could be uh, on the state in all sectors, economic, you know, health risks. She just wanted kind of this comprehensive uh, view of this. And she kind of pulled together these different people from different walks uh, of the energy sector, some uh, professors, attorneys, environmental law. Uh, there is a representative from the AG's office on there. And they don't have any power. All they're doing is collecting these voices from these various entities like uh, homeowners, from uh, research and environmental experts, from industry. And they're going to compile it into a report that will be submitted to the Senate Committee on Natural Resources by February 15th. They've already had three meetings thus far. They started meeting in November. And their last meeting, I think, is scheduled for January 18th at 1 p.m. at the State Capitol. All these meetings have been at the State Capitol uh, in the daytime. Um, and so this is kind of supposed to be an impartial, you know, body of individuals. Just They're not really there to answer questions. They're just here to take feedback uh, from people and, and kind of just compile it into something that 
we don't know yet how the state legislature is going to use this report, but um, it kind of is an indicator that I would think that if they're doing this, they must see CCS as something that is going to be a hot topic um, probably this year. Right. And but some voices are not able to be heard at those meetings just because of the timing of the hearings. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things I went to the first couple of meetings and I noticed all of the public voices were coming from a community called Lake Mar- well, around communities of Lake Marpaw, which are predominantly white. I don't want to say affluent, but there are there are a little bit, they have a little bit more resources than, uh, I mean, there's a lot of like retirement homes, yeah. second properties for a lot of families. Um, but these were the only voices, like everyone that came up to speak about CCS was just saying, we do not want this project that was potentially going into Lake Marlpaw, where a company called Air Products has proposed to pump like tons of CO2 underneath this wetland area where it's it's like a recreational lake. There's a lot of fishing, swimming, legitimate concerns that people people should have. Um, but one of the um representatives, she was her name was Jay Woods, and she got up and she said, Listen, you guys are hearing from you know, this community, but there are other communities across the state that are having the same concerns about CCS in their communities, and they're not able to come here today. It was something that I noticed as well, because I was like, these are a lot of white voices, but I knew from just knowing all of the proposed projects that a lot of projects are in predominantly Black and Brown communities in Louisiana, and they weren't at the meetings. And so um, when she said that, I said, you know what, let me just reach out to some of these uh, environmental groups that I commonly come across and and deal with. And I started to ask them, like, what are your guys' thoughts about CCS? And what they said is kind of what I tried to capture. They were like, listen, we are now fighting this. In addition to all the other things we're fighting, this is the new thing that everyone wants. Like, what is this? We don't understand what this is about. They're telling us it's good. Should we trust the government? We don't know. We need to know what's happening. But unfortunately, these meetings are happening in the middle of the day, at like one o'clock in the day. They're at the state capitol. Some of these communities live in the Lake Charles area. They don't have the means to take off work and come to a meeting. Like all of the people that were talk- speaking at the legislative task force meeting from Lake Marlpaw, a lot of these were retirees and housewives. Right. So they had the time to come and sit into a meeting for four hours, but everyone can't do that. And so when Jade Woods was talking, she was concerned that the task force would look at that and say, well, maybe only this community doesn't want CCS, but maybe everyone else does. Right, right, right. Um, just to be wildly cynical here, because the Biden administration has allowed Louisiana to bypass the EPA through permitting now, will it even matter what these task forces come up with? I mean, what they say, the voices of, of our residents say? You know, a lot of the people that I talk to from Lake Marpa and from the uh, majority Black communities, they feel like they're not being heard. They feel like, and they're scared that it's, their, their voices aren't going to matter. Because you have, like you said, the EPA has just granted the state primacy to permit class uh, six wells, and those are the wells that are used for CCS. And then you also have uh, a new governor has taken office. He has appointed someone to the Department of Natural Resources who is from the oil and gas sector. 
who has, before he got the job, pushed CCS. And so now there's really these concerns growing. I got a call just yesterday from uh, one of the residents of Lake Maripaw, and they're just like, what does this mean? Does this mean that pretty much what we say doesn't matter and this is all going to get pushed forward? Um, I think it's a legitimate concern because as history has told, has told us, the oil and gas industry really has a very tight and influential pool in this state. Uh, so those are probably legitimate concerns for them to have. I think that we'll start getting some answers probably pretty soon. You know, this year for sure, I think that in a report that I cited in my story, I think they said maybe the first couple of permits would probably come at least maybe maybe two this year if they're granted primacy. Um, and that's probably scary for a lot of these residents because they right. still don't understand it. And they no. don't, and they, and they feel like the government is not telling them the truth. It exposes a really fascinating sort of razor's edge that this administration has to walk right right now. And I mean the Biden administration, because on the one hand, they're advocating for this, you know, the climate goals that we are trying to reach at 2050. And this is not a new, you know, extraction industry. This is trying to get, as you said at the beginning, it's trying to take, remove carbon from the atmosphere. And yet it's on the other side, it's dangerous, it's unknown, it's it potentially really damaging and scary for elite, certainly low-income residents around where they're certainly going to be located. So it, it really, it's a conundrum, I think. And we're, It is. Go ahead. And I think that what people, you know, I remember when I first started to report about CCS and had to kind of figure out what all this meant, um, people pointed to the IRA and a lot of the environmental advocates and experts poked holes even in that. And they pointed out, well, listen, a lot of the policies around CCS were written by lobbyists for the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. So who's really pushing this? What is the, really the agenda here? You know, I think it's what we're seeing is we're seeing an industry, a very powerful industry a, that has a lot of money who essentially doesn't want to put themselves out of business because if you, if you, Focus to oil, uh, to wind and offshore wind and solar. But then, what happens to oil and gas? And um, I think that what we will see maybe in this upcoming year is going to be interesting. Uh, I think one of the uh, sources I talked to in the story said he said he's never seen an issue in Louisiana that has really combined people on opposite sides mm. of the political spectrum. You have people from all walks of life who all agree about something. And I think the fact that they don't trust the government now is really going to be interesting in Louisiana uh, to see how this is going to turn out. Like, you know, how is the, the Landry administration going to handle this? You, It's not just, you know, these brown and black liberals who are saying, don't put this here. You now have this very affluent white community that's also like, we don't want this either. What are y'all doing? And so then how is he going to navigate that is going to be very interesting in the next four years. Mm, yeah. Terry, what was interesting is because uh, it's such um, an explosive issue and it's moving so quickly, it seems like your take on this and, and who was in the room is so important. And then, but it really made me think, um, and since you're based in Baton Rouge, you probably have something to say about it. Like, it feels to me like this is probably happening with almost every issue unless you get the bu the busload of people that comes to lobby at the capitol these are this in general these are the same voices that are not being heard right yeah yeah definitely katie and you know 
being a reporter, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I've been covering, you know, these areas for about 10 years. And you are absolutely right. You know, oftentimes from, I mean, from West Baton Rouge Parish, from Plaque and Bay River Parish, I've covered, had beats in all of those areas. When affluent and white voices voice their opinions to government bodies, they're usually listened to. And when black and brown communities do the same, it doesn't usually hold the same weight that I saw in, in reporting. And it was some of the same things that I was hearing when I reached out to people for this story. You know, they feel like they feel like it's almost by design. The meetings are happening at the state capitol. They're happening in the middle of the day. They don't really want to hear from us. And then by the time we really know what's going on, it's too late. They feel like it's too late and it's too late to, to voice their opinion. And at the end of the day, no one cares. Um, and I think that that's exactly what, as I was sitting in those meetings in the beginning, and I just kind of kept looking around like, well, where is everyone else who I know or suspect probably cares about this issue? Uh, what, what does this mean if no one is getting their voices? What is this going to mean for them? Um, and, and that's kind of really what kind of drove me when Jay got up and said what she said. I said, okay, I need to go. I, I need to make some calls because I, I, I am thinking along the right track here. Um, and, and But I think what, what was interesting to me when I did come back and reach out to those uh, white voices from Lake they were saying the same thing that the black community was saying. They were like, we're not, we're not being heard. This is not, this is not what it's supposed to be like. We employ them. Why aren't they listening to us? And I thought that was very interesting that you now have an issue that has kind of equalized the playing field in regards to how voters feel about what state leaders are doing with their money um, and, and how, if they feel they're being listened to. And from what I can tell, everyone is in the resounding agreement that um, they think that the decisions have already been made and their state leaders aren't telling them the truth. Mm. You know, it, it strikes me that rural people especially have always felt like they, were, they weren't at home in the capital, right? And so it strikes me that what this is, uh, I know that I remember in the past one time since somebody saying that the, you know, that the flag that should be flying over the capital should be one that represents the oil and gas industry, that that's who really runs the place, Right. And that's what that's what you're seeing, basically, right, Terry? Or, or is that an overstatement? No, I don't think that's an overstatement. I've heard that for years, uh, even before I became a journalist. I heard that uh, I had family members who worked in the oil and gas industry, and I always heard that. Um, and I think that you know that's kind of when I even approach stories. I always approach it from that angle: is that you know these are the most powerful people. They have the most lobbying power. Listen, at the last legislative session. There were a batch of CCS-related bills, some meant to block the project that was happening in Lake Maripah. And this one company hired over 20 lobbyists. And pretty much all of those bills were dead on arrival. So that kind of answers your question right there. Mm. That, you know, who has the power here where we're seeing it, you know, and um. And I can understand why that's, that's very, very scary for, for voters, because these are people who have told me we don't have that kind of money to, 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 to fight and have this kind of influence. All we have is our voices and, and we're employing these people and, and they're not listening to us. And so 
what are we supposed to do? And and it's a question that me as a journalist, I, I don't, I don't, I can't answer for them. So I just try to cover it as ferociously as I can uh, to elevate the, the voices that I feel uh, they're, they're being ignored. Terry, thank you. Thank you, guys. I enjoyed being here. See you guys all. Have a good week. Bye, guys. Thank you. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. Environmental reporter from Floodlight News, Terry Jones. Education reporter, Marta Jusen, And managing editor, Katie Rechtel. Terry Jones wrote the piece for Floodlight, a nonprofit newsroom that investigates the powerful interests stalling climate action. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.